We've got the really cool privilege of, of having uh, Jeremy Jean, my dear friend, share. And before I invite him up, I just want to acknowledge um, several members of his church. Jeremy's a local pastor, started planting around the same time that we did. Um, can we just acknowledge and welcome our friends from The Calling this morning that are in the room? There's a few folks here. Really glad to have you guys worshiping with us this morning. We talk about this a lot, but it's cool to put it into practice on a Sunday morning. We see ourselves as a part of the larger body of Christ in Knoxville. And so thank you to you guys for being a part of the body and loving Knoxville well, for loving and supporting your pastor. It's great to have you guys here this morning. So Jeremy, if you want to come up, man, I'm going to pray for Jeremy in a second. Jeremy and I lived probably a mile or two apart for a decade in Spring Hill and never met each other. We had to move to Knoxville and plant churches in order to meet each other. Um, but Jeremy has become a really, really good friend, him and his wife, Jill. Jill, can you wave back there? I'm, I might be stealing your thunder. You might have been going to do that. But Amy and I are really honored to have them in our lives. And um, it's pretty cool to link arms with another pastor who loves Jesus, loves people well. Um, and more than all that, man, you're my buddy. Same. You're my buddy. <laughs> And so I love this guy a lot. So we're, I'm going to just pray for Jeremy really quick. And then um, he's got an awesome, awesome word for us this morning. I'm excited for it. So God, thank you for Jeremy. Thank you for his heart for you, first of all, and for his wife and his kids. Thank you for his heart for the church and for this city of Knoxville. And God, I just pray your hand of blessing on all that he does. God, that as he loves well and as he faithfully declares your word, God, that you just bring an awesome increase into his life. Um, God, thank you for the impact that the calling is having and will continue to have in our city. God, thank you that we can be friends and partners and co-laborers um, to see people's lives touched for them to, to meet you, God, and experience the incredible love of Jesus. God, would you just fill Jeremy with your spirit, give him the words to speak, and uh, we just can't wait. Help us to have hearts and ears and minds to hear and receive this morning. God, may we be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, challenged where we need to be challenged. And God, I pray that we'd be more than hearers today, but God, we would apply what we learned today. Thank you for your faithful servant. Bless him this morning as he shares. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Can we just make Jeremy feel welcome one more time? Cool. Thanks, guys. And thank you, Jake. Do I have this muted or am I good? I'm good. Okay. If you guys can't hear me, just like wave wildly <laughs> and we'll fix it. Um, it's an honor to be here at Grace Chapel today. Um, as Jake said, my name is Jeremy. I serve as the pastor um, at The Calling. Uh, we meet near downtown right here in Knoxville. And uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of intro before we dive in. And I make you like trust me with scripture and all of that. So a little bit of context on who I am. First of all, I'm honored that my wife, Jill, is here. Just wave at everybody, Jill. That's her, the really pretty one back there. So um, Jesus has been good to me. Um, <laughs> Jesus is, uh, no, Jesus is my all, but Jill is my better, like 90%, not my better half. So glad she's here. Um, God has blessed Jill and I with two amazing and beautiful daughters. I think we have maybe a couple pictures of them. Um, we'll see. This is Jules, you know. Um, and then last but not least, this is James Ivy, right? She's the most recent addition and uh, she keeps it real around our house, right? 
Um, I'm also really honored that my dad is with us today. Um, this is this is a really cool moment, and Dad, we're glad you're here. Uh, I wouldn't be sitting here doing this if it wasn't for that guy on the back row. So <laughs> we give honor to fathers for sure. Um, Jill and I both grew up in Austin, Texas. Uh, it is a very cool place, right? But way less cool than Knoxville. Um, I know you're like kind of some of you are looking at me with a little bit of doubt about that. But I'll just say this. Living in Austin is kind of like doing life with your head inside of a really hip but hot oven all of the time. <laughs> and at the same time as paying like astronomical amounts of money for that enjoyable experience. Right. So Knoxville, much cooler than Austin. <laughs> So eventually, God helped us escape the Texas heat. We moved to Nashville, as Jake said. We lived there for almost a decade. Um, I spent years on the road as a professional drummer and road manager uh, for a lot of different Christian bands. Um, some of those you would probably know. Some of you, it's a pretty young crowd. Um, some of those you have probably never heard of, but your parents absolutely love, right? So we're not going to name any bands because that will date me and it's Father's Day and I don't need to be reminded of how old I am. Um, but during that journey, we were really blessed with the opportunity to meet and experience and do ministry in a lot of different churches and expressions of the body of Christ. Um, we got to be part of planting several churches. Uh, we even got to help plant a church in Nashville. Um, and during that process, God started giving us a vision, downloading a plan into our hearts for a church that we would plant one day named The Calling, right? And we are, we are walking that dream out right now. Um, we spent several years preparing for that. We served as executive leaders at a large congregation in Louisiana. I know, right? It's like Jesus just wanted us to live in hot places <laughs> so that we could appreciate Knoxville more when we got here, right? Um, and it's been awesome to watch what he has done as he has drawn together just a beautiful um, budding community named The Calling close to downtown here. And it's been awesome to watch what he's been doing in all of you guys at Grace Chapel. Um, all of you are part of what God has done in our church, whether you realize that or not, right? Um, I can still remember getting an email early in the morning on a weekday from Jake. Um, and then I remember sitting down for coffee for the first time and just feeling like I had found a long lost friend, right? Um, becoming friends with Jake and Amy has been one of the biggest surprise blessings that God had for us in Knoxville. And so we're super grateful for you guys as well. Uh, so we give honor, right, today to Jake and Amy and to Jesus for what he's doing in Grace Chapel, right? And what he's doing in you, what he's doing through you. Um, and we at The Calling are extremely honored to love Knoxville alongside all of you. Why don't you give yourselves like a great big hand? Can you do that? Uh, so this is a house of grace. Um, Jill and I have received that grace from your pastors and from some of you that we've met. You've been a tremendous blessing. And so I'd like to continue along that train of thought this morning and dig into the idea of a house of grace. All right, what does that mean, really? Um, what does it look like to live in a house of grace? 
What are the possibilities for Knoxville? And how might that transform our lives and the lives of people in our city? Um, there's startling, beautiful things about living in a house of grace. Uh, before we get there, though, we're going to need to build a foundation. So you ready to dive into some scripture? All right, let's do this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, or if you're an eyeball person, um, or you have a device of a different sort, just turn with me, or you can scroll um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. While you're turning, I will grab a drink of water. <laughs> so this is the Apostle Paul speaking. He's talking about a thorn in his flesh. It has been a source of torment, struggle, like a hardship in his life. Anybody here ever had any of those? Cool, not just me. Good. Um, so this is Paul speaking about a conversation between himself and the Lord about this thorn that he's faced with. Uh, and so it says this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. All right? Is it okay if I involve you guys a little bit in the preaching today? Like, don't freak out. I'm not going to make you do anything super scary. But just look at somebody next to you and tell them, grace is enough. Grace is enough. Alright? Let's look at a couple more verses. Next one's going to be John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. I'm going to move quickly because I want to make the most of our time. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That's awesome. You don't know how awesome yet, but stay tuned. All right? Next up, Romans chapter 5, verse 19. It says, One man disobeyed God, and many became sinners. In the same way, one man obeyed God, and many will be made right. The law came to make sin worse, but when sin grew worse, God's grace increased. So, sin once used death to rule us, but God gave people more of His grace so that grace could rule by making people right with Him. And this brings us life forever through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at a different person and tell them there is always enough grace. Last up, we'll get to the house part, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 says, because of all this that we've just discussed, you are no longer outsiders and strangers. You're citizens together with God's people. You're also members of God's family. You're a building that's built on the apostles and prophets. They are the foundation. And Christ Jesus himself is the most important stone in that building. The whole building is held together by him. It it rises to become a holy temple because it belongs to the Lord. And because you belong to Him, you too are being built together. You are being made into a house where God lives through His Spirit. 
All right, really crazy on this last one. Maybe do this. On the row in front of you, just tap somebody on the shoulder and tell them, God is building a house of grace. (laughs) So the information age is pretty appropriately named, right? Uh, It is an amazing and it's a crazy era in which to live, right? Because there's never been a time in human history where we have had more sheer data at our fingertips. This computer used to fill up this cafeteria. (laughs) It's incredible, right? Um, One of my favorite Bible teachers says it like this. We have literally in our day and time, we have infinity in our pockets, a.k.a. the iPhone, And you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and it never comes to an end, right? Sometimes the information age can be sort of like trying to drink from Niagara Falls or something, you know? That's a a futile (laughs) proposition. Um, You get drenched, uh, but not quenched. That was not in my notes. It just came to me like that. (laughs) Go, Jeremy. And we find that maybe an overabundance of information is not necessarily making life easier. It actually makes it a little bit harder sometimes. Or is that just me? Yeah, anybody else? Maybe I'm just getting old, but is there anybody else in the room who at times you drive down the road and you very seriously contemplate rolling down your window and just flinging your iPhone out? (laughs) Yeah. So... Alongside frustration, one of the fruits that the information age bears is this multiplicity of opinion, right? Worldviews in our time abound, okay? There used to be just a few in ancient times. There were a couple of prevailing views of the world, and that was it. That was the only understanding. Now, there are thousands, literally, maybe even millions. And sometimes it can be hard to imagine a world that's more divided than the one that we live in. Right. One of the great ironies of our era is the fact that rather than uniting us more, all of this information and technology has actually kind of caused us to become more divergent. We're the most connected yet disconnected society in the history of the world. Here's what's also interesting. Our technology and just the deluge right, of this information That allows us to remain separated from others while simultaneously forming opinion and passing judgment on them. And so we have all of this knowledge about people, but we don't know them. (laughs) So we live in pockets of reality. We live in packets of data. We live in thought tribes in our time. Now, let's be honest, we don't have very much patience for people that are outside of our particular tribe. Some of us are Democrats, right? (laughs) They're like, oh, no, here we go. (laughs) Promise this is not going to be about politics. Some of us are Republicans. Some of us, if we're really honest, don't want to be either one of those. right? Some of us are followers of Jesus. Some of us follow other teachers or teachings. Some of us don't follow anything but the latest bit of information. Some people think we should spend more in this country. Some people think we should save. We're concerned about health care 
and warfare and security and sexuality and education and safety and the climate and natural resources and equality. And we're even concerned about life itself in our time. And we debate all of these things intensely. And I'm not even scratching the surface. As many issues as you can name, there's different opinions, probably in this room, about those. And if we're honest, we don't have a lot of love for people that see it different than us. And what we tend to do is we, we shake our heads and we murmur and whisper. We call those people crazy. We, at times, demonize those people a bit. We say they're part of the problem. Anybody else besides me hate that statement? It's because it's like maybe we need to realize that the problem is that we're viewing people as problems. In reality, people are children of God. Um, and then we walk away. Back to our information pods. Um, back to our divided views in our fractal existence. The problem we face is that in the information age, we're experiencing an abundance of opinion but a shortage of grace. And the cracks just keep getting wider in our culture, um, in our country, in our world. And there's like this chasm between the hearts of humanity that just keeps spreading, right? Heavy, huh? <laughs> I mean, I see you looking at me. It's like, thanks, Jeremy, so much for encouraging us on Sunday morning. I feel like I can go out and take on the world right now. <laughs> Thankfully, let's pivot, okay? Thankfully, there is another way, okay? What if I told you in the middle of this divided world that there's a way to live in peace even with those people that we disagree with? Even the people we think that they're wrong. Even the people that have done wrong to us. If I told you there was a way for the brokenness and the division to be healed, it's called forgiveness. It's called grace. And grace marks the trailhead of the way of Jesus. And it's the doorway into the kingdom of God because, as we find in Scripture, our Father and His family, we live in a house of grace. All right. So for the past couple of months at The Calling, we've studied the Lord's Prayer. Um, and we discovered that when you really break it down, that prayer is actually a prayer for God's kingdom to come in context. For His will to be done in earth as it is in heaven. And then it goes on to tell us what God's will actually is. Right? And what His kingdom looks like when that will is done. I'm going to read it to you really quickly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Right? You see the context there? So Jesus is telling us that when God's kingdom comes, there is daily bread. That when God's kingdom comes, we are forgiven and we forgive. Right? When God's kingdom comes, we're delivered from evil. But I want to focus on that forgiveness piece 
What is it about that? What is it about grace that Jesus would include it in his list of essential things to pray for? There's got to be something going on there, right? First and most obvious, if you're taking notes, this is your chance. Jesus is trying to teach us that we need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven. The words he uses in Matthew are, forgive us our debts. In Luke, he gets a little more plain. He says, forgive us our sins. And so we find Jesus uses two descriptive words. The word for debt, it literally describes a heaped up, amassed pile of debt. Okay? Um, anybody ever been there? More bills than paycheck. <laughs> more tax than paycheck. Right? And it's like, how are we ever going to pay for this? Um, that's, what, that's the picture that Jesus is painting of the debt of sin. Speaking of sin, the word he uses for that is the Greek word hamartia. Right? It literally means to miss the target or to make an error. So let's apply. Let's break this down for a second. Let's be honest. Is there a single one of us in this room who hasn't missed it on something every now and then? You ever judge somebody too harshly and then they turn out to be okay? It's like, oh, I missed the mark on that one. <laughs> you ever let somebody down when they were counting on you, depending on you? Ever told a lie? Ever tweaked your tax return a little bit? Maybe for you, it's more serious than that. Maybe you've done major damage to somebody by your actions or, or maybe your inactions. Right? You ever failed to make time for your husband or your wife or neglected your kids or been angry when you should have been kind instead, been selfish when you should have been generous? The list... <laughs> keeps going, right? But you get the idea. Um, what I'm doing here is illustrating the idea that we find in Scripture, which is all of us have sinned and missed the target. And if we're really honest, most of us do it in some way or another every single day. Here's another key point. Usually, we don't even mean to. I don't, have, I don't have time to do a full teaching on sin this morning. You're welcome, by the way. <laughs> right? Won't put you through that. But I do want to take a second because I want to try to dispel a bit of a myth about sin um, that doesn't really come from the Bible. It actually comes from Bible Belt culture um, rather than the New Testament. So bear with me. I don't want to mess with your theology. Okay? I just want you to have right theology. So, here we go. All right? Um, the Bible teaches that sin is a big deal. The Bible teaches that sin is very real. So real, in fact, that the Bible describes sin as a type of almost force, sort of like gravity. Um, it's autonomous. It's a force. It's a law. To use the words of Paul, the law of sin. All right? Um, there's a diverse group here. Right? Some of you came up, you were probably like born under a church pew, some of you. Uh, sin is familiar, doesn't freak you out too much, which, side note, that could be a problem. You might want to adjust that. <laughs> Others of you are new 
to the whole church following Jesus. You're trying to figure out this death, burial, resurrection, what it's all about. And when, and when you hear people talk about sin, it kind of freaks you out. And it's scary. It sounds like this thing that everybody is guilty of and that due to that fact, God is angry. Right? You may have heard a theology of sin that kind of portrays God as putting up with it. But rest assured, those awful sinners out there, right? You awful sinners out there are going to pay in the end. God is waiting for you and he's going to get you. <laughs> right? Never heard it put that way. You've heard it said that sin is basically your fault. And that God is not happy with you because of that fact. You've heard people make a big, 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 big deal out of sin using faulty information. The fact is that the Bible doesn't teach the paradigm of sin that most of us in the American South have in our heads. Instead, Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8 um, has this beautiful, life-changing treatise on sin and redemption and the love of God. If you haven't read that, read it. Read it tonight. If you want to really understand what the Bible teaches about sin, that's where it is. Okay? Uh, but let me sum it up for you. Real basic. Sin is not you. In fact, sin is a law. Sin is this kind of dark force at work against us, keeping us from the good that we really want to do. And it's keeping us from the God who we were created to know. It's a force that we're powerless against on our own, which is why the Bible teaches that we need to be rescued by someone who has all power. Know anybody that fits that description? I do, right? His name is Jesus. Listen to the words of Paul as he describes this problem in Romans 7 and 18. He says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now pay close attention. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members or in my flesh another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see what I'm talking about. The Bible teaches that sin is an enemy combatant. Fighting against us, fighting against you, fighting against me in the battle for our souls. So sin is not you. Sin is something that's at war against you. And God is not mad at you for that. In fact, the opposite. 
God has rolled up his sleeves and he has waded into that fight on your behalf. He knew that you could never defeat sin on your own. So you know what? He did it for you. He knew that you and I would have to pay the penalty, so he paid it for us in advance. He knew that only blood could cover and atone for sin, and so he gave his own. He knew that the wages of sin is death, and so he went ahead and cashed that paycheck so that you and I don't have to. Listen very carefully to me. God is not waiting to judge you for your sin. He is offering to forgive you for it. God is inviting you into a new life. He's inviting you to be part of His family and to live in a house of grace. Right? So how, how does God feel about forgiving? It's a great example in the parable of the prodigal son, right? It's in Luke chapter 15. And in it, Jesus tells a story of a man who had two sons. He also tells the story of a house of grace. And so most of you have heard it. I'll summarize it quickly. The youngest son asks for his inheritance before his father dies, which was a tremendous insult to his father. That would still be insulting now, don't you think? But in those days, <laughs> it was horrific. Okay, So he takes his inheritance and he leaves his family, going off to a foreign place and spending his fortune on, Jesus says, riotous and unsafe living. Fill in the blank. Okay, <laughs> Translated. Selfish pleasures. It's probably a good term. So can you believe this guy? Like first the insult to his father. And then he takes what his father's worked his whole life for, for him to have, and he just squanders it on meaningless junk. Right? Talk about missing the mark. He's not even aiming at the mark. But when he realizes his mistake, Jesus uses the phrase, when he came to himself, he decides to go back to his father and ask forgiveness. And he doesn't think he deserves to be fully forgiven. Instead, he decides he'll just ask to become a servant in his father's house, right? He says, let me be hired help because I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. So he heads home. And what is God's response when this like gold medalist of missing the mark <laughs> realizes his error. You do know that the father in this story is God, right? And that the son, that's you and that's me. That's what Jesus is talking about. So how does God respond? Let's look at Luke 15 and 20. It says this, And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You have to understand in order to appreciate what's happening there. That it was considered disgraceful for a patriarch to run in that culture. It's like people of consequence did not run. <laughs> it was considered undignified, right? Probably hard with robes on as well. But so you have this father who has been disgraced by his son. He dishonored him by taking his inheritance early. He dishonored him by spending it on meaningless junk. Here's this father that's been done so wrong by his son. And he's waiting for that son. He says he saw him a long way off. You can almost imagine the father every day, same time, same place. Maybe it's in the evening towards sunset. And as the sun sets on this day, like all the other ones, he's out in front of the house and he's just hoping. He's just wishing. He's just watching for his son to come home. And on this day, the father's heart just explodes with joy because he can see the silhouette of his son maybe coming over the ridgetop. It's a familiar shape as he heads down this path towards home. And the father runs to meet him and he throws his dignity to the wind and he forgets the disgrace. He forgets all of the dishonor. All he wants is his son right then. This is how God sees the debt of our sin. Heaped up pile. All the times we've missed it. He forgets every bit of it. And he runs to meet us and welcome us back into his house of grace. This is the father that we have. So over the years, um, I've found that a lot of us, like the prodigal son, we don't fully grasp our father's heart in his grace. We come to ourselves and we realize we've done wrong and we recognize all the hot mess we've created, right? We come to God and we ask for forgiveness. And like the prodigal son, we just... We just ask for a bit of mercy. Maybe he'll be willing to give me a place to sleep and a bit to eat. Maybe I can just be a servant if I go back. Maybe he'll let me hang around the fringes. And some of us, we see ourselves that way. And we see God like that. And we understand mercy, that he's willing to forgive us. And he'll forgive our sin and, and we get to go to heaven when we die. And we're thankful for that because we know that we don't deserve it. But really, that's all. And we think that the things that we, we could have been, that we should have been, that stuff's over. And it's gone forever. And what we expect is a servant's welcome 
and a servant's salary and just a roof and a bit of food. And we only ask for a bit of mercy. But what we don't understand is that grace goes well, well beyond mercy. Grace is not content for you and I to be anything less than everything that God created us to be. Grace will never settle for you living in servants' quarters, living in the barracks while the family gathers in the house without you. Grace will never settle for somebody else stepping into their destiny while yours is all washed up. Grace cannot leave the guilt and shame that echoes in your heart late at night while you think about it. Grace teaches us instead that God, the Father that we have, He doesn't have any second-rate sons. No second-rate sons in His house. And you can't come back to our Father and just be an employee. He will not let you do that. Because He will give you nothing less than the best grace that He has to offer. And that grace is sufficient for every single awful, terrible, or minute thing that you have ever done or faced in your life. No matter what you've done. Back to the beginning, right? Grace is enough. Grace is enough. Sometimes we think we can out God's plan for our life. And there is not a chance about that happening. That's what John was talking about when he said grace upon grace. Right? Uh, that context is about the Old Testament and the law, which was a grace from God and that it provided for us the possibility to be forgiven of sin and to be servants of God. But that was not enough for God. Instead, he piles another dispensation right on top of that. He stacks grace on top of former grace because God doesn't see you as a servant. God sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter. If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. So God's not content to allow you to be a shadow of what you could have been. Instead, with his grace, he is making you better than you ever would have been in the first place. This is what happens in a house of grace. Ephesians 4 says that we're all given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, right? Greek word for that, real quick, nerd break. Um, the Greek word for measure is the word metron. It literally describes a measuring stick, like a yardstick. And so the picture is that Jesus has literally measured out grace as a gift to us. So what does that mean? That means that before you ever messed it up, before you ever missed the mark, before you ever piled up that debt, he had already measured out sufficient grace for you. This is why we can never exhaust the supply of God's grace in our lives because the exact amount that we need, that I need, that you need has already been measured out for you. There is always enough grace. 
So the Father, he sits on the front porch of eternity and he just watches for us to come back. Maybe he's tapping on the porch rail with a measuring stick <laughs> and he's already used to measure out whatever it is that you need from him. It's in God's house of grace. You have no past. There's only a future for you. All right. I'm now halfway through. <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> Stay with me. As amazing as all of that is. <laughs> I got some of you. I saw you. <laughs> um, would you believe that it gets better than that? Is life changing as being startled by the grace of our Father is. That's only half of his plan for grace in your life. And the second half is even better, more difficult, but it's more beautiful. So take a mental step back to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Anybody remember the second half? As we forgive our debtors. So Jesus is teaching us that not only do we need to be forgiven, we also need to forgive. In fact, he immediately follows the Lord's Prayer with this statement. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. See, grace, grace comes to us with a caveat. And God's grace towards you and towards me is, is endless, right? It's abounding, it's boundless. Um, it's grace upon grace. But our ability to receive that grace is conditioned on our willingness to give it to others. This point is so important to Jesus that he says it again in Mark 11. Again, talking about prayer, he says, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your, your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. So why is this so important to Jesus? Why is he saying this over and over again? Why is it so important that he says we should do this every time we pray? I think it's because he understood that grace is what brings us into our Father's house and into the kingdom of God. Grace is the key that opens the door. Right? So back to the beginning where we started. The division. The fractured world that we live in. Um, all the differing opinions. All the ways that you've been wronged. I've been wronged. All the ways that we count others wrong. That list <laughs> that we keep in our mental back pocket probably safe to say that most of us want to see God's kingdom come, right? We want to see His will be done. We don't want the mess and we don't want the dysfunction we see around us. But if we're honest, it's not very easy to let go of our feelings toward other people, is it? It's easy enough to ask forgiveness for what I've done wrong. It's a whole lot tougher for me to give it when I've been done wrong. It's easy to focus on, on their sin. It's easy to focus on why somebody is in the wrong. I mean, here's what we forget. The same Father 
who's looking out the windows of eternity, watching for you and for me to come home. Same God is watching for the people who have sinned against us to come home. It could be cheating spouses. It could be crooked business partners or abusive family members. It could be acts of terrorism or violence. Who knows? The same father is hoping that they come home just like you and just like me. And the problem, here's where it gets real, right? The problem that we're faced with is that when I hang on to their sin, that becomes my sin. And it keeps me from being forgiven myself. And here's the last thing. They don't have to deserve it. Jesus just tells us to forgive them anyway. Because he knows better than anybody, doesn't he? <laughs> that none of us deserve to be forgiven. But thankfully, right, God's grace is greater than what we deserve. When Jesus paid the price for sin, he paid the price for all sin. He paid the price even for the ones that have been perpetrated against me and against you. What does that mean? It means that world peace is built right into the Lord's prayer. It's been there the whole time. We could have saved a lot of diplomacy, couldn't we? What if instead of bombs, we gave forgiveness? What if in, instead of fighting, we loved? What if we've, we followed Jesus into forgiving the unforgivable? Right, there's no mistake about it. We're never more like Jesus than when we forgive somebody who doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Because that's how the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. I'm going to ask you a question. What, what if we were brave enough to give grace to people in Knoxville who don't deserve it? To give it to people that we don't agree with? What if in the middle of our divided, fractured information age, you and I could be a startling source of grace to people. And they're just shocked that we would love them. I can't believe that you would do this for them. How would that change Knoxville? How would that change your home? What if this, what if, what if that grace that we showed those people, if that became the path that leads them home to the Father and into a house of grace? Because ultimately, that's what our Father wants more than anything else, is for all of us to find a home in that house and to live in His grace, right? 
Can you, can you hang with me for like two and a half more minutes? You want to do something? You want to put this into practice? Does that scare you? <laughs> what is he going to, is he going to make us come down front? I don't know. No, I promise I'm not. Do this, actually. It'll be familiar. Take out your, your smartphone if you have one. You have one? I bet this is the first uh, invitation slash wrap up you've ever seen involving an iPhone. <laughs> Take out your phone. If you're fighting the information age, you're one of those like me, just get out some paper. It's okay. You can use that. Analog is cool. I want you to write down two words. Just open up whatever app that you use to take notes. And I want you to write down two words. First, I want you to write down others. Then I want you to scroll down or, or flip the paper over. And I want you to write me. I'll give you a second to type. <laughs> you guys are cool because you have the little clicks turned off. It's good. All right, so first, others. I want to take a second and I want us to ask God to identify any unforgiveness that we may hold towards anyone. All right? There's somebody that you need to forgive. There's somebody that's done something that still is an issue. I want you to write their name down under others. Take a few seconds, let you write, let God speak to you. Who needs grace from you? All right, now, what's their debt? What do they owe you? What do you need to forgive that person of? Summarize it in a couple words, it not have to be long. And just write that down next to their name. Now I want you to consider this. What would it look like for you to remove that debt for that person? And to give them grace. Do you need to call them and tell them? You need to send a text have a cup of coffee next week. Might be simpler than that. You might just need to walk across the room after service <laughs> and talk to them. Maybe you just need to acknowledge it in your own heart, right? In your own mind. But whatever God speaks to you as a means of releasing that person and forgiving them, I want you to write that down too, beside their debt. And here's the thing. So I challenge you to do that action before you come back to church next week. It just got real, right? <laughs> Make the phone call. Send the email. Have the coffee. Have the conversation. Um, do it before the week's over. So step one is give grace to people who need it from you. All right? So symbolically... Let's let it start now. Uh, if you're ready to forgive that person, if you're not, hang on to that and let God continue to work on your heart. Okay? Um, if you are, then I just want you to delete their stuff right now. Just leave their name, but take away their, their debt to you. Just delete it. Backspace. Or you can cut and delete, whichever is most 
familiar to you? Just erase it like it was never even there. All right, now, scroll down or flip it over, depending on your format. Now, what do you need? What does God need to forgive you of? How have you missed the target? How have you messed it up? What's the debt that you've piled up? Once he shows you, once you have it in your mind's eye, I just want you to write it down next to your name. crazy to see it written out, isn't it? <laughs> it's like right there in front of your face. So now I just want you to take a moment. You don't have to do anything. You have to raise your hand. I'm not going to make you even pray out loud or anything, but I just want you to ask God to forgive you of that. We'll take about 15, 20 seconds. Just ask him to remove it. Ask him to erase it. Ask God for the grace that you need because He already has it measured out. All right. Now, as a symbol of that grace, <laughs> just go ahead and delete your mistakes now. Just wipe them out. That's what Jesus has already done to them. They're already gone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your house. Um, I thank you for this building that we all have the honor and the unbelievable privilege of being part of. I thank you just for your, your heart toward us, for your mercy, for your grace. I thank you for your love that reaches into the worst possibilities that we have. It makes us new again. It makes us your children again. I'm going to give you thanks for your grace. And I just pray that as we walk out of this room this morning, that you remind us that we are new creations. If we've struggled, if we've wrestled with guilt and shame and condemnation, I just pray that you remove that. I just pray that you remove that from our hearts and from our minds. Help us to walk like sons. Help us to walk like daughters. Help us to step into the things that you knit us together to be and to do with no shame, but with boldness about who we are in you and in your grace. And I pray that you empower us to give that grace. Just pray that you you give us boldness. You give us kindness. 
You give us the words to say or the things to do to give grace to people that need it from us. And I just pray that as we step out um, as your sons and as your daughters and we offer the grace that you've given us, I just pray that we begin to hear stories back (laughs) about how that is transforming our neighborhoods and our city in our workplaces, in our homes. And you're so good. And we give you great thanks and praise for the house that you're building in Knoxville. We're honored to live in it. We're honored to be called your sons and your daughters. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. you say it with me? Amen. Amen.